entered the Anthropocene, an epoch shaped by human activity. With science and technology we have accomplished incredible things, but also caused undeniable damage to the planet's environment. Just a few days after we finished recording our interviews for this podcast in Trieste, the neighboring Karls Plateau began to burn. Fire took hold of trees and shrubs that had dried up from the lack of rainfall. Railway lines and highways had to be closed off for days, and we had to leave the city by ship if we didn't want to wait it out there. The following week, a new study in the journal Environmental Science and Technology suggested that rainwater is no longer safe to drink anywhere on Earth due to so-called forever chemicals having spread throughout the entire atmosphere, leaving no place untouched. And soon after that, Pakistan, where earlier this year birds had been falling from the sky, killed by heat stroke, was visited by storms leaving a third of the country underwater. More than 1200 people died and conservatively one million homes were destroyed. It's crucial that we understand how our system of knowledge shapes the world around us. This is The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sisa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name is Diego Vizintin. You are about to hear from my colleague Sofia Gru. Today we're discussing the Anthropocene. We've reached the present. In this final episode of our series, we'll be diving into climatology with Professor Ricarda Winkelmann. And later, we'll also be joined by historian of science, Professor Giulia Rispoli. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners, Professor? Sure, yeah. My name is uh, Ricarda Winkelmann. I'm a professor of climate system analysis at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and the University of Potsdam in Germany. Hi, and welcome to our podcast. So the Holocene was a very stable period of time. If we look at the evolution of temperatures of the last 20,000 years, for example, there is a clear trend. But recently, something has drastically changed. What is unusual about the past couple hundred years? For me, there are two things that are really remarkable about this. The, the first is, um, as you say, that the Holocene has been... Um, an incredibly stable climate. Um, I mean, of course, uh, there were also extreme events and um, variability in the climate system, but the global mean temperature overall has been incredibly stable for several thousands of years, and with that also, for instance, sea level. Um, now, the difference between an ice age, say 20,000 years ago, and today's interglacial, that's typically three to four degrees of temperature difference. And we're now facing that same increase in temperature, but on a much, much faster timescale in several decades or at most centuries in comparison to the thousands of years it took from the last ice age to uh, the interglacial. And when temperatures rise like they are doing right now, not all Earth systems react in the same way. Some are more delicate and they can reach crucial tipping points that make them act in a nonlinear way. What does this mean? Yeah, there are several tipping elements uh, in the Earth system, and they are characterized by highly nonlinear behavior. That means that once they are in a critical state, a slight change in, for instance, the, the temperature um, can really lead to drastic changes in that element. 
We see tipping um, elements from the cryosphere systems, like, for instance, the ice sheets, to the uh, great um, overturning circulation in the ocean, um, to important biomes like the Amazon rainforest, the boreal forests, also the coral reefs. But they're all characterized by that threshold behavior that an abrupt change can happen once they are in a critical state. And um, the ones that are um, most vulnerable are actually um, our cryosphere elements, so our ice landscapes on Earth, um, as well as the coral reefs. For them, um, two degrees of warming would actually already be too much. The critical threshold is below that. These tipping elements don't only interact with each other, but also with our cultural and social sphere. So we are at risk of reaching a domino effect. How can this happen and how strongly is the climate connected to global society? So a domino effect uh, would be characterizing um, an event where the tipping of one element leads to a tipping uh, of another element. And this can happen both um, in the biogeophysical sphere, so where, for instance, the tipping of the Greenland ice sheet would promote and make it more likely uh, that the Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation would also tip just because of that freshwater influx into the North Atlantic that can lead to weakening um, of uh, that overturning circulation. So there are potential domino effects in the natural sphere, but then there are also potential domino effects between the natural and the social sphere. For a few years now, social tipping has really been at the forefront of the scientific agenda for many researchers worldwide, especially the potential for so-called positive tipping towards sustainability. And the idea here is that in uh, similarity to what is going on with the biogeophysical tipping elements, you might also reach critical thresholds in the social sphere, for instance, through social movements, but also in the implementation of technologies or so um, that could actually foster changes towards sustain sustainability. And um, we can now imagine that if we have similar dynamics uh, between the, the natural tipping elements and the social tipping elements, that there could also be interaction between those and potential domino effects where um, if we foster some of these technologies or social movements towards sustainability through a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, that could actually lead to a domino effect back onto the climate system to help us avoid some of those climate tipping points. So in a way, one could say, um, that in order to avoid some of those unwanted climate tipping points, uh, we actually want to foster wanted social tipping points. So there is a new proposed geological epoch being discussed, the Anthropocene, defined as the time in which human activity emerged as a geological force able to shape the planet. Do you think rapid climatic changes could be a marker of the Anthropocene? That's a really interesting thought, and I think um, we are all sensing that the Anthropocene is actually uh, not just a new epoch in, in the sense of stratigraphic markers and so on, but really something has changed in the dynamics of things. We're experiencing the great acceleration, so the speed up of different processes, both on the biogeophysical side of things, but also uh, in social uh, developments. And I think that is really an incredibly interesting, well, scientific topic, but it's also, it concerns all of us, the Great Acceleration. And the question is, what possible future trajectories arise from that? 
Now, for me, the Anthropocene could also be um, marked, or the onset of the Anthropocene could also be marked, um, looking at this from a system dynamics point of view. So when did actually those positive feedbacks that lead to that great acceleration, when did they actually start? Um, and we're hypothesizing a feedback between um, knowledge, uh, population, um, and energy. And, and I think these three entities are really important um, to understand the Great Acceleration and also the emergence of the technosphere. So we can learn a lot from, um, from that system dynamics thinking in understanding also the Great Acceleration and as one of the main phenomena of the Anthropocene. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Professor Winkelmann brings up a good point. To understand the Anthropocene, we need to take a broad approach. Environmental issues shouldn't be examined only by hard sciences, but also by humanities. Our next guest will help us expand on this. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, my name is uh, Giulia Rispoli. I'm an assistant professor at uh, the University of Venice, Ca Foscari, in Italy. Um, I'm an historian of science, and I teach uh, science, environment, and global politics, and history of scientific institution. And my work is uh, revolves around the Anthropocene theory and uh, history of planetary genealogies. And before that, I was a scholar, a research scholar at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. So, Professor, there is a long history of studying human activities influencing the world around us. Could you give us an overview of the main touch points? The impact of uh, humanity on the Earth, on the Earth system, uh, manifests itself uh, in many ways. Um, and this was uh, this impact, this manifold impact, has been studied uh, well over the past. Uh, 50, 60 years in a very um, technical and scientific way, but actually uh, efforts to understand the complexity of, of human activities and how it interferes with Earth system functioning, or maybe we shouldn't say Earth system functioning because Earth system science is a very recent discipline, but with the biospheres functioning and in general the ecosystems reaches far back uh, in time. I mean, especially during the Industrial Revolution, we have um, geologists, even in Italy, uh, we can mention, for instance, Antonio Stopani, who is an Italian geologist, who um, compared um, humanity to a telluric force, to a sort of like earthquake that can shake the earth, shake, uh, the earth make this tremor happen just because of its, uh, its activities and the way it manipulates the environment and acts upon it. Um, and the list of precursors of the Anthropocene can really go on uh, <laughs> in a sort of like, I would say, canonized folklore. Uh, even Paul Crutzen in this article, um, The Geology of Mankind, uh, already kind of like listed uh, a few um, pioneers of the Anthropocene uh, notion of the Anthropocene theory, among them Antonio uh, Stoppani. But uh, I could mention um, George Perkins Marsh, who was an American and diplomat, who was in touch with uh, Alexander von Humboldt and he also um, spoke about deforestation and all other impacts that humans uh, brought about and will, will in the future also as like foreseeing the activity of humans that would become more invasive, more intrusive and even more complex. 
Um, so in the, from the point of view of the Anthropocene theory and the way we frame it today, we try to understand it more scientifically today, um, the, the debate gets a little bit more <laughs> dangerous and more um, complicated, uh, also in terms of uh, showing the predicaments of the Anthropocene notion. Um, in the 19th century, in the 19th and the 20th century, but I would say primarily in the 20th century. Uh, in the first year of the, of the 20th century, for instance, um, Russian scholars, uh, Russian um, geochemists and natural scientists were really, really in a good position to frame the, um, the impact uh, of human activities on the planet. Uh, and they really like kind of get ins got inspired by a sort of um, planetary conception and planetary thinking where the planet is something that can change under the influence of humanities. Um, and I can mention Vladimir Vernatsky, Vladimir Ivanovich Vernatsky, but we can mention uh, many more, of course. Vernatsky was also among the scientists who anticipated the dangers of the atomic war and particularly of the nuclear winter following. In your work, you talked about the nuclear winter being, in a sense, a precursor to the concept of the Anthropocene. Could you tell us about that? Oh, yes. I mean, the nuclear winter is a very interesting uh, and um, important theory and case studies in this respect, because it really allowed us to imagine um, what the Anthropocene would look like, right? Well, the nuclear winter theory was introduced around the 1980s, um, to indicate that a thermonuclear war uh, is a phenomenon that could redesign global uh, biogeochemistry. Um, so what is happening with the Anthropocene, I think, is a kind of like analogous in many ways, um, because studying the nuclear winter story and the nuclear winter um, theory and how it unfolded can serve as um, a wonderful case study to understand today's environmental crisis and today's predicament, and even like to understand the Anthropocene notion itself. According to this nuclear winter theory that was proposed around 1982, 1983, uh, especially by um, Carl Sagan and his group, the TTAP group, um, from the initial of their names, of the, of the names of the members of the TTAP groups, but primarily animated by Carl Sagan. According to this theory, even if the United States and the Soviet Union would use only a third of their nuclear arsenal, to cause an explosion of about 5,000 megathons, the Earth would plunge into darkness. Since the surface of the planet would become inaccessible to sunlight, it would rapidly cool down. And this would cause major disturbances in global circulation patterns, uh, as well as dramatic changes in local climate and precipitation rates, uh, for instance. So there will be a massive modification, a massive change at the level of the ecosystem uh, and also at the, level, at the level of the atmosphere and climate that would basically resemble what we are now experiencing with the Anthropocene, even though, you know, from a local perspective, I mean, from the perspective of, of a European, um, for instance, it is not so visible Right. I mean, in, we may even not perceive what climate change is, uh, contrarily to other uh, regions of the world, like uh, in India or um, you know regions where floods or uh, inundations or other kind of like extreme events are an everyday affair. Right. 
And these guys, I mean, this, uh, the T-Taps and together with other scholars, especially scholars from the Soviet Union, because, the, sorry, I, I forgot to mention a very important um, fact about the international um, constellation of people introducing the nuclear winter theory and working on, uh, on, on it. This was a co-production of European, American, North American and uh, Soviet scientists. So it was a transnational effort. And this is very important because um, they also produced and uh, contributed in quite a, quite a different ways to the theory and the modeling practices that are behind it. So it was really like a very interesting example of uh, science and technology in relation also to different societies and different uh, political contexts in a very tense moment of Cold War uh, history, because we are talking about the 80s and so the Star Wars speech and uh, all nuclear um, the AIDS of the nuclear age. So it's really like also interesting to see how scientists were kind of working, trying to avoid uh, political and institutional um, uh, constraints. And nuclear winter is also very interesting because it lets us understand a great deal more about Crutzen's um, predicaments and theorization of the Anthropocene. Um, because the nuclear winter theory, not in, in its uh, more evolved uh, and more sophisticated theorization, but one of the very first uh, ideas that a thermonuclear war could really produce, produce something and cause something at the level of the environment and ecosystem, was um, put forward by uh, Paul Crutzen and John Birks in a paper called Twilight at Noon. Um, in which they first theorized the idea that firestorm um, could really produce uh, an environmental um, an environmental catastrophe that was only limited in size uh, uh, to the size, I guess, of the Scandinavia region. So it was not something global that would have a global impact. Um, it was a localized estimation of the effects of a nuclear war, but still, it was very important to set you know the the, the first brick. To, for, for others then to pick up the, the focus and expand this theory to see you know, the effects uh, at the pl on the planet, at the planetary level. Uh, and so this is also interesting to see how the nuclear winter can be related to the Anthropocene, since it's Paul Crutzen itself, himself, who um, uh, were at the beginning interested in more uh, local uh, estimations of this um, of the possible consequences at the same time, like about 15 to 20 years later, he actually, he actually uh, took up another step to understand the Anthropocene, starting from the Industrial Revolution instead of um, theorizing again uh, nuclear catastrophe. An idea being discussed very much lately in relation to humanity's involvement in Earth systems is the technosphere. And Peter Half is one of the names mostly associated with this new paradigm. Can you give us an introduction to his theory? Yeah. Um, Half's, uh, Peter Half, uh, first of all, is a member of the Anthropocene Working Group. <laughs> so, um, and he's one of the, um, of the scientists of the group who try to include a dimension, um, uh, a contribution that comes from earth system science and geoengineering, uh, a more global perspective that goes beyond uh, the stratigraphic impact or the, the search for signals at the stratigraphic level. So his um, contribution was very, is very important in this respect. 
And also because he introduced the notion of the technosphere. And the notion of the technosphere is now a very, um, a very fruitful and um, important term when it comes to understand, for instance, geoanthropology and what geoanthropology is and also the Anthropocene in general. Because as we were saying at the beginning, if we just like use the geological dimension and we forget about Earth system, then it's also, um, it doesn't come so natural and so um, easy to include the human dimension within, to factor in the human dimension within, within the picture. And so through the concept and the theory of the technosphere, that was much more visible to, uh, uh, to study and to investigate the intermeshing of social systems and the social sphere and all other parts um, of nature and uh, of the environment, of the global environment. However, the technosphere notion, as formulated by Peter Huff, um, has some limitations and has some um, aspects that probably uh, should be um, reworked on, should be uh, rethought or simply um, should be uh, reconsidered. And for instance, Jürgen Rehn is one of the um, of the scholars uh, who took this this challenge actually <laughs> in trying to um, broaden and enrich the concept of the technosphere and trying to avoid some limitations that the theory. Um, of P by Peter Half um, was actually having. And one of the most important um, obstacles of, of this theory, it's that it doesn't really include society um, and um, our system and human systems in a way that renders possible human intervention to restore a sort of equilibrium of the Earth system. Because his major contribution was this paper where, in which he listed six rules of the technosphere that point out to the fact that, uh, the technosphere, so this system that basically wraps up and covers the earth, um, with uh, all kind of infrastructures and uh, materials of human productions can actually act uh, to limit the human action itself. And so it, it, it is so complex and so um, difficult to intervene that it might leave human intervention aside. And so in this way, it, it, it is kind of like it's becoming an autonomous and independent system on human action. And this obviously has so many, mm, so many limitations. Um, for instance, uh, it kind of like depoliticizes and it really it kind of like blocks uh, human interventions, taking out human agency. Um, and in this sense, all these six rules uh, kind of describe the earth uh, and the technosphere as a system that cannot include human action and human responsibilities. And this obviously bring to a sort of like depoliticization of, of humans. Um, and in this sense, I guess the theory is very dangerous and, and must be... Uh, must be discussed, and this is what Jürgen is very uh, is remarkably doing in his book, *The Evolution of Knowledge*, where he tries to um, outline and underscore the importance of conceiving a technosphere in which humanity can gain back uh, its agency and um, access uh, the complexity of the technosphere to change its parameters in a way that this doesn't behaves as an autonomous and independent system that puts humans aside but um, tries to find a way um, through uh, new, pol new politics and um, new um, 
even like new knowledge, um, new possible economies or uh, new possible um, economic um, measures and economic uh, drivers in order to find uh, for the earth to find a new balance, uh, notwithstanding the amount of technologies and infrastructures that the technosphere bears. This is perhaps best represented by Jürgen Renn's introduction of the ergosphere as a conceptual alternative, where humanity is part of a co-evolutionary process, and the acquisition of new knowledge can lead us towards new possibilities. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is very, very, very fruitful. Um, and what Jürgen proposes is something that stems from the necessity and the urgency of finding a new cooperation between the sciences and the technologies, of course, and um, and the realm of uh, of knowledge uh, that comes from from the human sciences. And in this sense, um, the theory of the ergosphere can can really like it can be situated in the middle of this a new conjunction of of these different spheres of knowledge, because what we see. Um, with the technosphere concept in the way it was conceived by Peter Huff is that uh, is a sort of like dominance and supremacy of the technocratic component. And this means that there is less less space left for for humans and from for human culture for um, new systems of knowledge um, and uh, the um, contribution that might come from different sources and all this job is cannot be done solely um, by the scientists but should really bring in and include also other perspectives that come from from human culture from human knowledge in a more extensive way and so in this respect uh, what Jürgen Ren is really 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 uh, important and, and necessary and in this um, in this context, because it does not only offer a more um, coherent and a more complex framework for, for understanding and the discussion around the Anthropocene and the Anthropocene theory, but it's also like proposing, uh, not just complaining or criticizing the situation, as many historians of science do, are doing, trying really like to complain about environmental crisis, about the role of, um, of society. But Jürgen is, uh, is very, um, his effort is remarkable because he always tries to offer new frameworks to work with bridge out to to uh, to new possibilities to not just for understanding but also for acting and um the the example of the geoanthropology concept is really um something that goes in that direction the effort to generate to be uh, to propose new uh, solutions also at the level of of um um, humanity, uh, humanity's knowledge. Looking towards the future, Indian writer Amitav Ghosh has stated that humanism as an intellectual and cultural movement is to blame for the current state of our planet, because it placed too much emphasis on humanity and it disregarded nature completely. I think this shows that today our view on our power over nature is no longer so positive. Do you think humanism can survive this? Or will any kind of anthropocentric position no longer be tenable? Well, I think that, um, especially in recent years, we have seen a huge debate on um, theories like post-humanism uh, or um, theories they try not to take anthropocentric perspectives as, uh, as the basis, right? Um, trying to involve um, other forms of life, to consider other forms of life. Well, 
I think I, I might be a little bit um, on the fringe in this respect, but I think that that's the most appropriate uh, time where we have to think of a new anthropocentrism. We cannot, of course, escape anthropocentric perspective because this will even deny a Darwinian, uh, a Darwin's theory, right, of the of the evolution of species evolution. So I think that we must adopt an anthropocentric view that should be more um, adequately informed about uh, what's happening around us. Uh, but all this, this, this debate about uh, the dangers of being anthropocentric are a little bit dangerous in my respect, in my opinion, because they kind of like offer room, offer space to uh, ambiguity. I guess they contribute uh, fueling a sort of like, again, depoliticization of our thoughts and and practices. I think they responsibilize uh, humans. Uh, because if we look uh, back at the history of um, Earth system science or the history of biosphere studies in general in the 20, in the 20th century, uh, we see that some theories, uh, like for instance um, Gaia hypothesis, uh, James Lovelock's uh, Gaia hypothesis, um, were very, very um, brave and very um, ambitious. Uh, in really offering some very good explanations uh, for for uh, uh, for understanding how the biosphere works and uh, the activity of microbes, for instance, um, but at the same time they had some kind of like side effects uh, because they um, sort of like detached um, and cast some sort of shadow on on a human agency um, in view of a system that can be resilient. Um, can keep an equilibrium um, even though human activities are acting wrong. And so even if we accept the idea that the Earth can recover itself because microbes are much more important than humans, then humans feel deresponsibilized, right? And so humans mm, think that they can keep acting the way they act because the Earth, no matter what, will recover itself, right? And this is the concept of resiliency that... Uh, is really vague and ambiguous in in this sense as well. So I think that all these debates about um, not being anthropocentric and um, uh, the accusation of building a new humanism always put men and women, but more men, (laughs) at the center of the picture um, is, of course, very interesting and very important to make in, in a moment in which we see that um, there is a life, there is a nature that is independent on us and we should respect. And so we have to care about the point of view of a planet, <laughs> but at the same time can really um, make a disservice to the Anthropocene theory and the anthropology missions. We really insist on the fact that we have an important and urgent task at the moment. We should care of uh, the way we are being anthropocentric. And so trying to reformulate our anthropocentrism and to do so, we have to start from the fact that we are anthropos, basically, and recognize our responsibilities, even though they are heterogeneous and the anthropos is not a homogeneous category, of course. But all this should start from a collective effort. And I believe in this uh, sort of like Marxist uh, idea of um, finding a new 
collectivism back that should uh, uh, really insist on some universal values. And one of the most important universal values now is like trying to find a new politics that could really take care of the of the situation, despite all the differences that are intrinsic in this in the system, the human system. Yeah, it's like we should be better humans for humanity. Exactly, yes. Thank you, Professor Rispoli, for this intriguing and rather hopeful conclusion. And also thanks again to Professor Winkelmann, who we talked to earlier. The times we are living through are complex. There are no easy answers to the many questions the Anthropocene poses. But all the voices we've heard from throughout this podcast seem to agree. Only by working together and approaching things from different points of view can researchers begin to stand up to the challenge. In the conclusion of his book, Professor Wren goes a step further. Some of the knowledge that remains in the dark can only be generated, shared and implemented by direct participation in the struggle to change the human condition. That is, in practical attempts and local initiatives to find concrete responses to the problems on the ground with which the Anthropocene confronts us. Whatever way we encounter these problems as individuals, realizing that science is part of a global, comprehensive evolution of knowledge and not just an elitist pursuit for and by experts, may help to restore the life-orienting dimension that was a hallmark of early modern science and its emancipatory legacy. Thereby, in searching for that elusive, shadowy knowledge, scientists may again become collaborators in a workshop of hopes, including humanity's hope for survival. This has been The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sisa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Written and produced by Diego Vicentin, Sofia Gru, and Lorenzo Carta. Music by Gregor Kendall. Thank you for listening. Thank you.